No more. Hi, to my welcome to More Than Theology, the Pathways College podcast. And today, my guest is uh, someone I know pretty well. He's my brother, Luke Goodwin, um, but that's not his own or main credential or reason for being here. Uh, Luke is on the faculty at Pathways um, and co-teaches uh, a course called Theology in the Context of Aotearoa, which is taught in the context of a marae. And Luke has uh, recently finished a master's degree in, uh, well, at Laidwell College, um, researching in a particular area that I want to quiz him on today. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. Luke is uh, a, histo- a history teacher by trade and um, has long had a love for history, especially history in uh, New Zealand and uh, this context. And um, and somebody that uh, just has spent a lot of time thinking about the history of uh, New Zealand and uh, obviously done a lot of research in a particular area. So uh, we'll talk about that today. Luke, uh, welcome to More Than Theology. Thanks, Rich. Yeah, nice to be here. Uh, so your uh, area of research was looking at um, a particular missionary, um, Alfred Brown, and um, just tell us a little bit about your research and what um, sure. story it is that you're trying to tell about this guy and and the work that he was doing. Yeah, so uh, what I was really trying to get to was the nature of the relationship that uh, this one guy, uh, his name's Alfred Brown, uh, what was it, what was his relationship with Māori like? So he came, he was a missionary, he wanted to convert people, but did he make friends? Um, was he, did, he, did he walk around like he was the boss, or did he kind of get pushed around himself? You know, it's just um, there's lots of stuff that gets written about um, what missionaries do, but I, I kind of wanted to get to how they get on with people. Um, the, the trouble with that, that, so that's like the original impetus, right? The, the trouble with that is it's really hard to know um, what people's relationships are like from a distance of nearly 200 years. And hmm. my guy, Alfred Brown, particularly is quite hard to, to understand in that way because he writes really briefly. He has a journal. All the, the early missionaries in New Zealand were required to keep a journal and that journal became the report back to the committee back in London. Uh, he was really brief. He he got married at one point and his whole diary entry for that day, he's down in Wellington, he gets married and in his diary he writes, got married then went to the hut. Like that's, <laughs> that's not exactly effusive and uh, relationship-centric stuff. So then uh, to try and get at how he's actually getting on with people, you have to get a little bit more creative about it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, hmm. So what why, um, why Alfred Brown? Oh, yeah. yeah good oh, question. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question because he's not one of the big names. He's pretty early, like he arrives in the late 1820s up in the Bay of Islands. Um, the mission there was established in 1814, right? So it's still fairly early days. The treaty hasn't been yet. That's still over 10 years off. So, um, but he doesn't get the profile that others do, like Henry and William Williams and and so forth. So uh, the reason that I went for him is because he's local for me. 
So I live just south of Cambridge. There's this set of hills that sits between Cambridge and Matamata. And I live in those hills. And I taught over at Matamata for a number of years, 14 or 15 years, at Matamata College. Um, And Matamata is where Brown came to after he left the Bay of Islands. He headed south and established a new mission at Matamata. And so I spent a lot of time uh, in that place and with descendants of the Māori that he hung out with. Um, and so he, he's a fairly natural uh, person for me to, to be drawn to, I suppose. If I, I live on a farm. If I go to the top of the farm, then I can look down on the Hauraki Plains and Maramata Township, and I can sort of imagine him walking around and even walking across the hills where my farm is. Um, so he's quite close. Cool. And I kind of cut you off before, but what else would you say about what led you to this topic and this area of research? Uh, uh, I guess I'm interested in the missionaries, ge- just more generally too. And, and actually, uh, what I really like is early contact history. So some people are military historians, some people are economic historians. I quite like that moment when two cultures that have never encountered each other before encounter each other um, and, and how that plays out. Um, I was first introduced to that kind of history when I was at the University of Waikato uh, looking at early North American history. Um, and then as a social studies and history teacher at Maramara, um having to teach that kind of stuff or wanting to teach that kind of stuff drew me further and further into the New Zealand story. Um, And so, yeah, I I still just really like that early contact stuff. And it just so happens that the early contact stuff in New Zealand uh, features missionaries. Um, I'm also kind of interested in missionaries because uh, our parents were missionaries. um, And I always assumed that I was going to be a missionary when I grow up. Um, So I was born way back in the 1970s. I thought when I... uh, I thought, as a kid, looking forward to the year 2000, that I would have to come back, that you and all my siblings would have to come from the four corners of the globe back to mum and dad's place to celebrate um, the new millennium because we were all probably going to be missionaries. That was just kind of what I assumed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and and also, I mean, it's woven into the um, heritage of pathways as well. I mean... So our our dad worked at um, Glow, which was sort of an earlier iteration of of Pathways, and um, that was you know essentially, or at least significant chunk of it was about training people for overseas mission. And so it's not only I guess a part of our family's history, but it's also an integral part of Pathways College of Bible and Mission um, yeah, and right. that identity too. So it's it's important and. You make a good point. You know, when I was up in, uh, I w- was up in Waitangi over the summer holiday with my young family, and we went through the Waitangi Museum there, uh, which is, you know, a museum about early New Zealand history. Uh, but the the central players from the British side are missionaries. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're, a, a, you know secular historian or mainstream Kiwi telling the story. It's not just, 
it's not just Christians or telling a story of the church where the missionaries come up. It's telling the story of New Zealand where they really figure prominently. Yeah. Uh, I recently read a book uh, about European spread through the Pacific more generally. And every chapter ended up being a chapter about missionaries. I don't think it was meant to be a book about mm. missionaries. It was meant to be about just Europeans and and how they uh, encounter you know, Tahiti, Samoa, Fiji, all these different places. But it ends up being mostly the story of missionaries. Uh, so that's true for us as yeah, well. Yeah, so, so obviously, you know, doing the kind of research you're doing is it's not just of interest to the church. It's really of interest to all of New Zealand and understanding our yeah, history. This is our national so, um, uh, just mentioning that, uh, going up to Waitangi back in 2014, uh, that was the centenary of the start of world war one. And it was the bicentenary of the start of the Christian mission. So uh, I was at a history teachers conference and they were, they had that, those two events as the focus for the conference. And uh, they had a keynote speaker who had been responsible for the renovation of Marsden Cross, which is where that first settlement was up in Northland. And he said um, to this room full of history teachers that that missionary settlement really deserves to be as significant in our national story as Gallipoli or something like that. And when we think about mm. who we are as New Zealanders, those missionaries set a trajectory for our national story that could have been very different if they were just traders or some other group. Mm. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so one of the concepts that your research covers is the notion of middle ground, if I've got that right. Can you just yeah. explain what that's about? Yeah, so this is, um, to be a bit of a history nerd, um, this, this thing... Um, so I like early contact history. Sometimes that's a, a real sort of tidal wave. Um, so if you think of the conquistadors in South America or something, it's, it's violence and it's pretty one-sided a lot of the time um, and, and grim. But then you have other places where uh, there's no ability by one side or the other to really force the other group to do what you want. Um, and, and what you do is you, you find ways to understand each other, even though actually most of the time you're misunderstanding each other, but you create enough overlap of understanding that you can actually proceed together. And that, it's a, so it's a conceptual space rather than a physical space, but you create enough o overlap of understanding together that you can then both move forward and attain the kinds of goals that you're both seeking from each other. Um, and because there's a kind of a relatively even power balance, it's less about power and more about relationships, I suppose, and more about uh, just trying to figure each other out so that you can do what you want. So in, in this case, um, Brown is trying to figure out how to present the gospel and Māori, Māori have got all kinds of motivations for having a missionary among them. Uh, it could be literacy, it could be to attract trade, it could just be curiosity, you know, there's any number of reasons. Mm. 
Um, give us like kind of the nutshell version of the the story, if you like. Uh, like we've we've got Alfred Brown so far. Um, what's the iwi he's working among, and what was the effect of his ministry? Yeah, what's the kind of story in a nutshell? Yeah, okay. So uh, he comes down to Matamata because there's a big chief there. His name's Te Wahoroa. Uh, Te Wahoroa is fearsome. Um, his reputation is immense. There are all kinds of stories uh, that sort of display not just his, his smarts as a warrior chief, you know, so he's able to outwit his enemies and so forth. He's not just smart, but he's um, ruthless. And so uh, if you're coming up against a wahoroa, if he's your enemy, then you've really got your work cut out for you. But Te Wahoroa is one of many chiefs, actually. As the missionaries start exploring around the North Island to try and figure out where the best place to expand to might be, then Te Wahoroa is one of a number of chiefs who are asking for missionaries to come stay with them. So um, because he's who he is, and because he's actually in quite a strategic place, uh, the missionaries, they get go into committee, they try and figure out where the best place to be is, and one of those best places to be is Matamata with Te Wahoroa. He's, he gives good protection, but also uh, because he's kind of in the middle of traffic, if you're trying to get from, say, uh, what's modern-day Te Aomutu across to modern-day Tauranga, then you're going to have to go through his territory, Ngāti Haua territory. Um, and if you annoy him by not going to him, then he'll probably just interfere with you every time you try and travel through. So um, it's just smart to say yes to Te Wahoroa. Um, and so uh, Brown is sent. Brown doesn't volunteer, he's sent. He writes in his diary that he reckons there are three other people in the mission who would be better placed, more skillful than him. Um, but he goes, because he's a good Victorian man and he does as he's told by his superiors. Um, his wife actually deserves a, a, a lot of credit. She dealt with migraines a lot, and so she's often spending long stretches of time in bed. And in fact, health is a big issue, um, a feature in Brown's life. Quite tragically, his son dies after something like 13 months being bedridden with a head injury. You know, th there's all kinds of tragedy oh. in the story. But um, so his mm. wife, Charlotte, she's considered probably about as good a woman as you could hope for, for a missionary wife because she's actually relatively well-educated. And not just that, but she's quite good at teaching as well. And education is a big deal for the missionaries. If um, you're going to have any kind of success, you need to teach the locals how to read and write so that they can access the scriptures for themselves. Um, and so Charlotte Brown, they turn up. They're in the middle of you know this wild, uh, fearsome place they arrive, and then the next day they start a school. <laughs> you know, they don't really mm. speak Māori particularly well, but they're so keen to get amongst it that um, the both of them, the first thing they do when they arrive is start teaching them how to read and write. Um, well, I feel like I've 
gone off on a bit of a tangent there with her. I can't remember what your original question was. Just the nutshell story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not nutshelly, is it? Okay. So he's invited <laughs> by Te Wahoroa, but Te Wahoroa has two wars going on at the same time as Brown arrives. One war <laughs> is with the people up by Thames and another war with the people down around Rotorua. Um, so because things are tense, then within just a few months, um, the whole mission shifts over to Tauranga, and that's where Brown lives the rest of his life. It's it's what's now downtown Tauranga. So um, if you go all the way down Cameron Road, down past, you know, what are the streets there? 13th, 12th, 11th, 10th, you know, they're all named, numbered like that. You go all the way down past mm. First Avenue or whatever it's called, and you end up at the Elms. Um, and that's his house. That's where he lived. That's where the mission was based. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, cool. from 1830, late 1835 through to sometime in the 1880s, I think he died. That's where he lived. Cool. Um, in in your research, one of the – oh, sorry. Oh, well, you asked about his impact as well. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nah, let's not talk about that. It's it's really complicated. <laughs> um, okay. Some people converted, some okay. people didn't. There's actually something um, kind of interesting about the Māori um, story of conversion that's quite different from a lot of other Pacifica people. Um, in a number of other places... If the chief converted, then the people converted. Like that was just so the whole strategy was to convert mm. the chief. But in New Zealand, mm. that didn't work. So uh, if a chief converted, that didn't mean their people would also convert. Um, and if a chief listened to the story and refused it, his people were still free to convert if they wanted to. So um, there's mm. a there's a sense in which it's kind of a, a modern kind of a scenario where conversion happens individually um, and mm. you have to kind of convince every single person who's going to convert. Um, having said that, though, you read through his journals and you never find just one person converts. It's always groups of people. But he's not clear enough for me. <laughs> like, uh, uh, I'm not sure if that means that families are converting, you know, within the village or if it's friendship groups, or if it just so happens that there's like 10 people just randomly who decide to form up a Christian group. But it, there's n never a time when there's only one person in a village that converts. Right. You talk about a concept called the three self church. Can you mm. explain what that is and what role it plays in the story of Alfred Brown's ministry? Yeah, so Alfred Brown and all those early missionaries, and on particular by early missionary, I mean like pre-1840, because there does seem to be a big difference between the missionaries who arrive before 1840 and those who arrive after. Um, those early missionaries are all evangelicals, which means something similar to what we mean today when we say evangelical, but not quite the same. Um, one of the things about evangelicals uh, in those days is they were quite pro-indigenous rights and so you have people uh, that 
many of them are very influential, involved in politics and high up in business and all that sort of thing. And so they're doing their best to make sure that um, British activity in indigenous societies uh, is not as destructive as it had been in the past. So uh, evangelicals would look at North America, for instance, and the destruction of many, many uh, Native American nations and, and be horrified, rightly so. And so they were making efforts to make sure that that kind of thing wouldn't happen again. So when you have evangelicals who are acting as missionaries in New Zealand, then they're already coming from a place of respect for the other. Now, it might not be as respectful as we would like now. Uh, and there are certainly things that they do that uh, would make us uncomfortable if we were to try and do that sort of thing now. But it is, <laughs> I guess, it's better than the alternative, which is to steamroll uh, the other culture. Mm. Um, mm. But in the early 1800s, there's this kind of a, there's an idea that's floating around in amongst the various missionaries that solidifies in the mid-1800s as the three-self formula. So, so in the 1830s, 1840s, it's still not been written down, but you can kind of see in the actions of the missionaries that they're thinking in this kind of way. So here's, here's what it means. The three-self church is a church that is self-propagating, self-managing, and self-funding. So what they're hoping to establish, and this is actually quite explicit even from the late 1700s, what they're hoping to establish is not like taking the Anglican church from England in its entirety, all the hierarchy and structure, and, and placing it in New Zealand and populating it with Māori people. What they're trying to do is um, move as efficiently as possible into New Zealand, so without all the hierarchy of bishops and synods and all that sort of stuff, just individuals or, or teams of people seeking to find converts. Once a core group of converts is established, then you can start to build a church around them. And uh, there has been some discussion that the missionaries must have been really disappointed in their life's work because the church that started to emerge was Maori flavored uh, and the, hmm. there are people who are used as evidence so um, there's a guy his surname's Martin he's quoted uh, in one book as saying uh, you know the the Maori Christianity is a it's a horrible amalgamation of Christianity with Maori beliefs and so so that kind of thing gets quoted, and then the conclusion is drawn, well, so then the missionaries must have been really disappointed in this Māori-style Christianity. But that guy that they're mm. quoting wasn't one of those missionaries. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't an early missionary, he wasn't a late missionary, he was a magistrate. So probably mm. not even an evangelical, you know. Uh, mm. So how can you take that statement about Māori faith and say that it's an accurate representation of how evangelical missionaries would have felt. Um, in fact, 
those early missionaries relied really heavily on Māori to get the mission work done. If I, if I, for mm. instance, am a solo um, European missionary in Tauranga, then I can maybe, on a Sunday, for instance, hold three church services at three different pa. And so Brown would do that. He, he would hold church services at two or three different pa on a Sunday. But he had a network of what he called native teachers who would live days away. And they would come to him and he would sort of school them up on the next sermon or so. And then they would go back to those remote villages and carry out those church services. And they would run the schools hmm. and all that sort of stuff that the missionary couldn't do by themselves. Um, the missionary would often go and visit, you know, and Brown and, Brown and many other missionaries spent months just walking through the bush through the swamps and all that stuff to visit these um, Maori Christians, but there's no way that they could build the church by themselves. And so they're relying quite heavily and showing, I guess, some level of trust to Maori to do that church building work. So it's not going to be a surprise to them that Christianity in New Zealand is Maori flavored. Um, mm. one, one of the things about that three self church is that the missionaries are looking to do themselves out of a job. They talk about, and this is by the late, um, sorry, mid-1800s, they talk about the euthanasia of mission. And what they mean is missionaries should be looking to do themselves out of a job so that the hmm. local people don't need a missionary anymore. That's interesting. I feel like that idea you mentioned about evangelicals being kind of pro-indigenous rights mm. and, you know, what I've picked up ab about the role that these evangelicals played, um, this sort of so-called Clapham sect and their role in things like getting the treaty off the ground. I just feel like that's a part of New Zealand history that doesn't get a lot of airtime. It really doesn't. And... Uh, I often uh, give little talks on the Treaty of Waitangi and sometimes there's an awkwardness, it depends on who the audience is, but sometimes there's an awkwardness when I speak positively about the Christian involvement and it's a surprise to them that Christians would give instructions like, you're not allowed to trick them. You know, <laughs> so when Hobson comes out to get the treaty, part of his instruction is even if the Maori are willing to sign, if you realize that something in what they've agreed is going to do them harm, you need to tell them about that and you can't trick them out of it. You, you tell them not to sign it if need be. And that's that, those are instructions that are written by evangelicals high up in the, the imperial offices. Yeah, it's kind of like um, missionaries are often depicted as being sort of, I don't know, sort of agents of colonialism, and I suppose there's an element of that, but in some ways they're trying to protect Māori from the col colonial powers as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a very strong discourse that missionaries and colonisation are the same thing. And there is a lot of evidence, you know, that helps to support that kind of thing. So, so like I sort of alluded to earlier, 
there are some things that we'd be uncomfortable with if we saw them happening now mm. that the early missionaries did. Um, and, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but there is something about their intentions that's quite good. And that actually mm. does good. Um, so the cessation of warfare is one thing, right? Um, and the New Zealand missionaries deliberately crafted the gospel as a gospel of peace. Um, the reason they did that is because conflict between tribes was seen as the number one barrier to the spread of the gospel through the whole country. So if, if they could play up Jesus as the Prince of Peace, then that would be um, helpful for the gospel. But it's also good for the people, right? If you bring peace as a priority over warfare. And, and this is another pattern of evangelical behavior. Even when they're in Britain, they're not trying to make British people non-British. They're trying to make British people better British people by you know, the mm. abolition of slavery, by the abolition of child labor, by universal education, by um, ending things like um, you know, dog fights and bear baiting. And, yeah. Or, you know, all these kinds of things that are just kind of rubbish bits of uh, European culture. They're trying to improve the culture. And so then they come to New Zealand and they see things um, that are kind of abhorrent to them. And, and they're, they're trying to actually make life better for Maori people, not trying mm. to make them little British people. So you mentioned yeah. before something changed, though, like yeah, around 1840. So what changed? Yeah, so, so I'm kind of a fan of pre-1840 missionaries and not so much of post-1840. Hmm. Before 1840, you have Anglicans, Wesleyans, and Catholics. The Anglicans and Wesleyans work together fairly well, hmm. um, and they really hate the Catholics. Boy, uh, some of the, man, some of the stuff they write in their journals about Catholics is really you can't repeat that on here. But um, mm. uh, after 1840, you have lots and lots of settlers coming from all over Britain, and they're bringing with them their own ministers and establishing their, their own denominations that they're bringing from Britain and other parts of Europe. And they just don't have the interest in Māori people that those pre-1840 missionaries had. Pre-1840 mm. missionaries barely had a European population to encounter. They were there for the Māori, mm. but the post-1840 mm. missionaries were missionaries to the Europeans and ministers to the Europeans. Mm. And so as the European population starts to balloon and overshadow and marginalise the Māori population, then church's interest generally in Māori just evaporates. What about the role that Te Wahoroa and his son, Wiremu Tamihan is his son? Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Te Wahoroa and um, the, you know, the well-known Wiremu Tamihana, obviously Alfred Brown, I mean, it takes two to tango. Um, he's He was an important part of the story, but what did these leaders in the Ngāti Hawa iwi, what role did they play in the ministry? Yeah, there's a, there's a third name to mention there too. That's Ngākuku. Um, so 
So Wahoroa invites Brown, and I don't think Brown ever figures out why, because a few years later, it's at the end of the 1830s, uh, Te Wahoroa dies, and as a kind of an obituary, Brown writes, uh, this is not a quote, but this is the flavour of it, he says something like, uh, Te Wahoroa, bloodthirsty, cunning, um, uh, fearsome, and for some reason, a friend of the mission. So, like, <laughs> why why Brown is invited is is a mystery to Brown. But mm. uh, very early on, like in some of the first journal entries, uh, Ngākuku appears. And so Brown is having some trouble with, you know, he's trying to purchase a piece of land to establish the mission. Um, he pays some people for the land and then other people come. And so he's getting, you know, there's all this negotiating and pushback and to and fro. And Nakuku comes alongside Brown and sort of, sort of sticks up for him and defends him. Now, Nakuku is, is fairly famous because he's the father of Tarori. So if you know anything about the Tarori story, uh, she's you know, 12 or 13 and she's murdered and her Gospel of Luke travels the country and you know conversions follow. Ngākuku seems very early on to have been super keen on Christianity. Just when he converts, I, I don't know. But he's defending and assisting Brown from pretty much day one. So Te Wahoroa invites him. Ngākuku helps him to get himself established. But then one of the really important converts by 1839 is Te Wahoroa's son, who becomes Wurumu Tamihana. That, that's just the Māori version of William Thompson. So uh, most, most, if not all, Māori converts in those days would take on a European name when they got baptised. So William Thompson, Wurumu Tamihana. Wurumu Tamihana really, uh, he takes deeply this story, this gospel of peace. And so he had already started to build a reputation as a warrior for himself by the 1830s. Um, he'd been involved in at least one fairly major conflict and distinguished himself, quit himself pretty well. Um, but when he decided to convert to Christianity, Basically, to convert to Christianity meant to convert also to pacifism. So you knew you were going to give up warfare, um, which was a fairly important activity, particularly if you were going to be a chief. One of the reasons that Te Wahoroa mm. probably never converted is because he died before peace was secured in his area. I think I, this is my own sort of personal right. theory. I think he kind of liked Christianity, but um, he needed to be a warrior until he could secure peace for his people. And then he could yep. get, convert to pacifism. Wurumu Tamihana converts to Christianity and converts to pacifism anyway. And so when he becomes chief in 1839, he has to do a whole reimagining of what it means to be a chief in light of Jesus. Uh, and I think he does a marvelous job. And in fact, there's a guy who's living in his area uh, in the 1850s. His name's Gorst. And he wrote a book about the Māori king. And he said, the Māori king's amazing. 
and Wudamu Tamihana, who helped to establish the King Movement, he is amazing. Uh, I have met, this is Gorset speaking, I have met the Prime Ministers, the Kings of Europe, you know, all these great people, and I've never met anyone like Wudamu Tamihana. So hmm. uh, the brain on the man <laughs> was magnificent. Mm. His immersion mm. in scripture was enviable. All his argumentation, political thought or social ideas, how to arrange the villages and so on, anytime he's trying to persuade or speak in public, he's, he's peppering it with scripture. Um, one of the things that you used to do when you were making speeches in those days, as you would uh, make your speech, you know, think of a porphyry, people are standing at the paipai in front of the marae, and they, they'd be brandishing their weapons as they're speaking. And Wurumu Tamihana takes that idea, and he brandishes a Bible, because, you know, it's, this, it's the mm. sword <laughs> that we use uh, mm. to advance against the enemy. And so he, he like, such a scriptural guy, it's incredible. Uh, mm. And... He is still, um, so I live here in the Waikato and in Ngāti Haua territory, and he is still highly revered, and um, you go to any Ngāti Haua marae, and his photo is there at the back of the Farinui, and uh, they're all proud to be descended from this man or associated with this man. Mm. Um, just just mm. an incredible character. I didn't do my research mm. on him kind of on purpose um, because I'm aware that he is a, a Maori character in a Maori story and to tell that story best it would, it, it would take a Maori person I think so I'm, I'm yeah. focusing on the Pākehā yeah. guy It's pretty interesting eh? like just how um, seriously the Maori converts took Jesus' teachings on violence where, um, you know, perhaps in the Western tradition we've often been inclined to spiritualize it or qualify it. It seems like this, these sort of uh, historically warring people actually just took it at face value as, uh, yeah, pacifism. I mean, I think mm. we have to lay something at the feet of Augustine here when he starts arguing for just war. Because until then, I don't think mm. you could be a Christian and, well, it would be much harder to justify being a Christian and taking up arms in the way uh, that, you know, you think of during the Crusades, for instance. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. one of the great tragedies of Tamihana's life is that he's the chief of a people who are prospering and he's friend of the British. He respects the the position that's given to Europeans here by the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, and then Christians make war on him. In, in the 1860s, mm. the British army invades. This is an army made up of Christians. <laughs> so that just mm. obviously that doesn't compute for him. And so he's blamed as a rebel rabble rouser and a rebel because he's present at all the battle sites. But the reason he's there is to try and talk the people out of fighting because he really has mm. taken this gospel, this Prince of Peace story way down deep uh, to the shame of 
many of the missionaries and other Europeans who came. Mm. I recently heard a theologian um, giving a presentation on Robert Maunsell and Governor Gray, and he framed his talk as a challenge to scholars, perhaps like yourself, who argue that the missionaries weren't as um, colonial in their approach as um, you know secular historians have often argued. So, um, I mean, he was calling for the church to own its own um, history, its legacy, and to repent of that. Yeah. But how do you respond to that kind of critique? You haven't heard the presentation itself, but just generally, how would you respond yeah, to that? Well, what would you say about it? The initial response is to make that distinction between missionaries pre-1840 and post-1840. But Monsu is one of those early missionaries. Um, I suppose mm. le, le, if we take a, a look at the longer story of Brown and the elms that I mentioned... Um, so Brown enters the area in 1835. He's preaching the gospel of peace. He has a measure of success. There are a few Christian par that get established. Uh, his influence perhaps starts to wane um, late 1840s as more and more Europeans are turning up. Um, but in the 1860s, he hosts the British army. And so, uh, if people know the Battle of Gate Par, it's called Gate Par because he had his house and all this property that he, he had purchased on behalf of the Mission Society. At the edge of it was a fence with a gate. And the par was built just outside that gate. So then, Brown hosts the British officers in his home, has dinner with them, and then they make war on his converts the next day. You know, and then, mm. I mean, how it's just impossible to understand. No, it's not impossible to understand how he could do that. He is British and he is Anglican and the Anglican church is associated with the British government and has hundreds of years of you know, uh, ministering to British soldiers and so forth. So it's not impossible to understand why he would do that, but it just defies belief still that he would host mm. the people who are making war on the people that he's dedicated his life to. One, mm. one of the end results is that the Crown uh, forces the Church Missionary Society to, to sell that land to the Crown, and so downtown Tauranga exists now because of that uh, pressure to, to alienate the land. Uh, 2019, I think it was, the Anglican Church apologised for its role in the loss of downtown Tauranga for Māori. Mm. So, yeah, mm. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to say that those early missionaries did nothing wrong, but uh, I am trying to say uh, that I guess what I'm trying to say, here we go, is that those missionaries and that Christianity and colonization are not the same thing. They're not exactly the same. And that actually a lot of good did come out of that early Christian activity. And there are 
there is a Christian legacy among Māori because of those efforts that is super valuable. Mm. Um, it's something to be mm. treasured and cherished. And I think actually is something to look to as a model of how to be Christian in New Zealand. Um, because Māori Christians... Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the three self-church, self-governing, self-propagating, self-funding, nowadays people also add self-theologizing. So for Māori hmm. now who are Christians to engage in the business of theology, I think is super valuable and one of those long-term benefits of what was happening back in the early 1800s. Talk more about, you know, what does all this mean for following Jesus in Aotearoa today? Yeah, I, I mean... I think if you want to be as interested in justice as Jesus was, then you need to know the story of our country. That's the first thing. Um, choosing to remain ignorant is less and less viable now if you're wanting to remain relevant and a person worth listening to. Um, so that, that doesn't mean we all have to become history scholars, but we do at least have to be somewhat conversant with what's happened in the last couple of hundred years and the ways in which Christianity has benefited and uh, hindered or, or acted as uh, a negative influence in that story at points too. So that when we come into the, it might be a, public square kind of a politics discussion. It could be a private at the backyard barbecue kind of a discussion. We can at least be in that conversation from a position of intelligence and not ignorance um, and, uh, and then present the gospel elements of that story as something that we can be proud of with that caveat that, you know, there are some shadows in there, but it is uh, largely a story mm. that we can be proud of, particularly the early story. Um, and mm. as that guy said at the teacher's um, conference, if it hadn't been missionaries in 1814, if it had been another group, then the story might have ended up a lot worse than it did. Hmm. Hmm. That's really cool. Uh, Luke, congratulations on your master's degree and um, thanks for sharing your research with us. Um, I asked Luke before we recorded or started recording if he had any projects he wanted to plug and um, although he has some that he probably could have, he he uh, sort of in a, um, a you know, self-deprecating way <laughs> just said declined. Um, so I might... Um, take the opportunity to plug Luke's um, paper that he teaches. He's a kayako along with um, Te Mape Haimona, who's um, a kaumatua in Ngāti Haua today. So Te Mape and uh, Luke teach this course theology in the context of Aotearoa together. Uh, students stay at a marae, 
um, to Mapi, takes them to some significant places um, in the story of the gospel um, flourishing uh, amongst Ngati Hawa, also to some spots that are um, represent some very shameful acts um, from British. Um, but it's a really interesting, fascinating paper, um, and it's just one of many you can do at Pathways. So if you're listening or watching out there and you want to hear um, Luke teach more on this, um, then, you know, look into um, joining the crew and um, that's the sort of thing that you get. So, Luke, um, we really like having you on faculty and thanks for um, joining the podcast today. Thank you.